Reading the Globe. Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. July 21st, 2021. People generally do not embark on a career at Goldman Sachs in the hope and expectation of having an easygoing, stress-free career or enjoying what some like to call work-life balance. For junior bankers and traders, the environment there is known as especially competitive and demanding, not to say grueling. Run some quick online searches, go onto YouTube, and you will find accounts by former employees who say they went to work at Goldman thinking they were not naive about what they were in for, only to find that the demands surpassed even the soberest expectations that it was hard, if not impossible, to have a life outside work. To say nothing of the culture and ethos of the place, which were the subject of former executive director Greg Smith's widely discussed New York Times op-ed piece, Why I Am Leaving Goldman Sachs, in March 2012. In his account of life at the investment bank and his explanation for giving up a coveted executive post, Smith accused Goldman bankers and traders not of conduct that was technically illegal, but of harboring contempt for their own clients, referring to them disparagingly even in internal email, and pushing strategies and products that made oodles of money for Goldman, but did not serve the client's best interest. Given the sacrifices that junior employees have to make to stay alive at the firm, and the singular focus on making money, it may surprise some to learn that pay for people starting at Goldman falls short of industry standards. As reported this past weekend in a Financial Times article, Goldman wrangles over whether to pay junior bankers higher salaries. You can expect to make less in your first year at Goldman than at other Wall Street firms. The article cites Wall Street Oasis figures indicating that first-year Goldman analysts on average earn a little under $86,000 in salary, along with a $37,500 bonus, compared to a median $91,400 salary and $39,700 bonus elsewhere on Wall Street. The rationale for this discrepancy is that Goldman rewards based on performance, not some arbitrary median, but the article details how Goldman's executives are in a somewhat awkward position. The question is how to maintain merit-based pay while avoiding the poaching of young talent by higher-paying rivals. J.P. Morgan Chase Barclays, and Citigroup are offering base salaries in the $100,000 range, while Wells Fargo and Bank of America have recently offered handsome raises. After all the negative exposés and testimonials that have come out, anyone who defends Goldman may be going out on a limb. But we might note that respect for a work ethic and the desire to reward employees based on merit, however questionably defined, are vanishingly scarce in a world where certain social and political agendas tend to drive corporations. According to the Financial Times article, Goldman's chief executive, David Solomon, has come out firmly against the flexible work arrangements that became so common during the time of COVID-19. People should not work at home. They need to get back to the office as soon as it can be arranged. Does Solomon have a point here? Maybe it is an issue for another podcast, but working at home may not bring out the best in anyone. This is only speculation, but perhaps the vision of unshaven, hungover, pajama-clad employees banging out emails and calling clients in between glimpses at YouTube videos 
does not sit well with bank executives. Here's something to ponder. Is a corrupt order preferable to none at all? As the COVID-19 pandemic turned life everywhere upside down, one of its most distorting effects on day-to-day life stemmed from the policy undertaken by the administration of New York's progressive mayor, Bill de Blasio, of moving homeless people out of crowded shelters where COVID transmission rates were likely to be high and into luxury hotels. Needless to say, the arrival of dozens or hundreds of homeless people in an upscale neighborhood like the Upper West Side can catch residents totally off guard and, given the prevalence of substance abuse and severe mental health problems among the homeless population, can seriously degrade the quality of life and endanger the safety of ordinary people unprepared for the onslaught. With the pandemic finally on the wane, efforts have at last been underway as of June 16 to move the homeless out of the hotels and back to shelters. But activists for the homeless have met these efforts with a flurry of spirited street protests and legal challenges. A report by Molly Crane Newman in the New York Daily News on July 14 quotes Diane Smalls, a lawyer representing the homeless, saying that she and other plaintiffs who have successfully blocked the Department of Homeless Services relocation plan do not seek to stay resettlement of the homeless permanently, but simply to put the plan on hold until DHS has a better plan in place that will not uproot people in a matter of minutes from the hotels in which they have lived for a year. The Legal Aid Society's position is that representatives of the city are required by law to meet with the homeless one-on-one and make determinations about their individual cases. Perhaps the most curious quotation in the news article comes from federal judge Gregory Woods, who issued the ruling on Tuesday putting the relocation on pause. The public has an interest in ensuring that disabled homeless persons who may be among the most vulnerable in society have a right to be protected, Woods said. It is interesting that the judge should try to frame his decision in terms of what is best for the public. Nowhere does Woods or anyone else mentioned in the article explain how moving the homeless to luxury hotels and keeping them there serves the public's interest. Although the article briefly mentions protests on the Upper West Side against housing the homeless in places like the once swanky and desirable Lucerne Hotel, it does not quote any of the ordinary working men and women of the neighborhood who do not want mentally ill homeless persons harassing and menacing their small sons and daughters when the children begin going to school again in a matter of weeks, or who do not want the crime, hooliganism, public urination, and general degradation of the quality of life and of property values that inevitably follow when once respectable parts of a neighborhood become dyes for the homeless without the approval or consent of people who live, pay taxes, and raise families there. Their voices are absent here. The Daily News article drives home once again that in the eyes of its editors, the progressive viewpoint is the only one that deserves to be heard. Political science, as we understand the term today, is said to have originated with Machiavelli. But the truth is that every age has had its diplomats and ambassadors, and the high point of ancient Mayan civilization is no exception. Archaeology Magazine's July-August issue contains a fascinating article by Deputy Editor Eric A. Powell, Autobiography of a Maya Ambassador, 
which details the career of an official named Apac Wall, who made his home in the city of El Palmar in what is now Mexico, near the border with what is now Guatemala. Apac Wall held the official title of LACAM, or Bannerman, and carried out highly important diplomatic functions as an envoy between city-states. His life and career have gained increasing attention from archaeologists since a team from the University of California, Riverside, discovered in El Palmar a nine-foot-tall stone staircase displaying hieroglyphs that detail how, at the behest of the leader of Calakmul in the Kingdom of the Snake, Apac Wall set out on a 200-mile trek from El Palmar over sometimes hostile terrain to the city-state of Copan. There, UC Riverside archaeologist Kenichiro Tsukamoto speculates, Apac Wall held a meeting with Copan's king, Rabbit 18, to try to form an alliance, pitting Kalakmul and Copan against the mighty city of Tikal. The mission's success in the long term is open to question, given that Kalakmul later encouraged rebels from the city of Kerriga who captured and beheaded 18 Rabbit on May 3, 738 and Tikal ultimately crushed Kalakmul. The discovery and interpretation of the hieroglyphs on the stone staircase represent a breakthrough in the study of an ancient civilization. They remind us of the complexity and brilliance of Mayan society and the consummate skill that went into the making of its artifacts, as well as of the fundamental error of thinking that all pre-modern societies were peaceful and egalitarian until the arrival of belligerent and materialistic Western invaders. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Audio Hopper.